0: The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's, The greatest flavors unite in all-new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Wick nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumbo Casino
1: We thank you for listening. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. I'm your host, Larry Lease, And on today's Cold Case Friday, we dive into the quote-unquote unsolved murder of Ken Rex McElroy. But first, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Audible, for sponsoring this episode. What is Audible, you ask? Well, let me tell you all about them. Audible is a subscription service that allows you to buy audiobooks that you can listen to from anywhere. Audible allows you to choose from a gigantic array of audiobooks narrated by amazing narrators. Right now I'm listening to The Dead Zone by Stephen King, narrated by Oscar-winning actor James Franco. It's the chilling story of a high school teacher who falls into a coma and wakes up, wakes up with psychic abilities. In all seriousness, audiobooks are great for when you're alone and maybe you want to stop with. The YouTube videos. So let me ask you this Do you want a free audiobook of your choice of any genre in any kind? Well, then go to slash hilarious21 and claim yours today. So without further ado, let's dive right into today's episode. The murder of Ken Rex McElroy isn't unsolved in the typical sense of the word. It wasn't the kind of murder which goes unsolved for decades, and eventually someone comes forward with a tip that breaks the case wide open. This is far from what happened in the case of McElroy. In fact, anywhere between 30 and 90 people witnessed the shooting of the 270-pound brute of a man on that hot July day in 1981. But not one person has come forward. A pact of silence was made between the witnesses. The truth is that the people of Skidmore, Missouri were sick and tired of living their lives in fear under tyrannical reign of Ken McElroy, which by then had stretched over two decades. Someone had to put an end to it, and that's exactly what they did. So who was Ken Rex McElroy? Well, he was born in Overland Park, Kansas on June 1st, 1934. He was the 15th of Tony and Mabel McElroy's 16 children. McElroys never had any money. Gee, you wonder why. They worked as sharecroppers and moved often before settling in Skidmore. The children had a little parental supervision, and for the most part ran free around town. McElroy dropped out of school in the 8th grade. It was widely reported that he was illiterate, but he did not let this hold him back from getting what he wanted in life. Not long after leaving school, McElroy sustained a hand injury when he fell from a hay wagon. It was reportedly so severe that he needed a steel plate implanted in his head. Many speculate that this traumatic injury was a cause of his volatility and aggression later in life. By his teens, McElroy became known as the town bully of Skidmore, notorious for his cruel treatment of anyone who dared challenge him. He ruled with an iron fist, inciting fear and causing a persistent sense of dread amongst townsfolk. He was the ultimate intimidator. On leaving school and even before, McElroy began stealing items such as antiques, alcohol, grain, and gasoline. He'd often be spotted hunting raccoons and was notorious for rustling hogs and cattle in a small farming community. It wasn't long before he became a violent menace. His more serious crimes included rape, assault, and child molestation. As, he, as a result, he was no strange to the Notaway County Sheriff's Department. To describe McElroy as intimidating is putting it lightly. Each time anyone brought charges against him, which happened a total of 21 times, he would intimidate his accusers into dropping the charges, leaving them terrified and fearing for their lives. He favored methods of intimidation, including approaching people, hissing threats at them, and shoving his shotgun in their faces. He would also follow them home, sit outside in his trunk, and stare at them with his dark, sinister gaze for hours on end. One time, a farmer named Romaine Henry caught McElroy trespassing on his property and attempted to chase him off. Instead of leaving, McElroy turned around and shot Henry in the stomach with his shotgun. Henry survived, and unlike the majority of McElroy's other victims, he actually went on to testify in court against him. Being shot in the stomach wasn't enough, though. McElroy was acquitted, thanks to his talented attorney. Many speculate that McElroy also threatened the jury. There is no denying that McElroy was a skilled criminal. His long career of breaking the law resulted in pockets permanently stuffed with $100 bills. Much of his cash, however, went to Richard Jean McFadden, his lawyer. McFadden was a highly skilled attorney who got McElroy off the hook time and time again. The more McElroy got away with it, the more it seemed as though he was exempt from the law. The townspeople resented the constant fe- feeling of anxiety. McElroy's presence left them with but even more frustrating with the ineptitude of law enforcement and the handling of the monster that terrorized them day in and day out. So we're going to talk about the many wives of Ken McElroy. Brace yourselves, this part is a roller coaster. McElroy pretty much got whatever he wanted. Women were no exception. However, most of his sexual affairs weren't with women, but rather underage girls with whom he collectively had at least 10 children. As far as I could find, McElroy was married three times. His first wife, Sharon, was 15 when they met, while McElroy was at least 20. McElroy was hardly a loving husband and regularly beat Sharon. Eventually, Sharon and McElroy had two children. By the time the second child was born, McElroy found another girlfriend, Sally, who was only 13, while Ken was around 27. McElroy moved Sally onto the family farm with Sharon and their two children. Sally had three children with McElroy. Sharon had another two. McElroy soon bored of Sharon, Sally, and his seven children and found another underage girl, Alice Wood, who is widely referred to as McElroy's second wife. McElroy moved out of his family home to be with Alice, but this relationship was no different from his previous ones. He abused Alice verbally and physically when she gave birth to their son. She moved out to live with her mother and stepfather in St. Joseph, the next town over from Skidmore. Enraged by Alice leaving with his son, McElroy called the home and began threatening Alice and her family. He told them he was coming to pick up his son, and if anyone tried to stop him, he would kill them. Alice's stepfather, in so many words, told McElroy to shove it. McElroy drove to the house and shot him in the leg through his living room window. McElroy was arrested on assault charges, but Alice's stepfather would need to testify. In order to stop him from doing so, McElroy carried on with his usual scare tactics. He told him he would kill his entire family if he testified, following him and sat outside his house for hours. Eventually, after an altercation at a bar, during with which McElroy threatened him with a shotgun, Alice's stepfather dropped the assault charges. Even after all that had happened between McElroy and her family, Alice moved back into the McElroy family home with her son. To welcome her back, McElroy found yet another girlfriend, Trina McLeod, who is 12 years old. While McElroy would have been around 35, when she was 14, Trina got pregnant. After giving birth, Trina and Alice, exhausted from living in constant fear of McElroy, took their children and left the McElroy film to live with Trina's parents. Needless to say, McElroy was having none of this. He went to Trina's parents' home, where he viciously beat Trina and Alice, then burned the McLeod house to the ground. He forced the two women and the children into his truck and drove them back to the farmhouse. Trina had to go to the hospital for the injuries she had suffered at the hands of McElroy. The doctor who treated her was appalled and called child services. Tina was admitted into foster care with her son. McElroy was charged with arson, rape, and brandishing a deadly weapon. His lawyer managed to delay the process for so long, however, that Trina, who was still a child and very naive, got bored of foster care and ran away. She went right back to the McElroy farmhouse with her son. McElroy got a divorce from Sharon. Or Alice. Honestly, I'm not sure who he was married to at the time. And married Trina so that she would not be compelled to testify against him. Clearly, and not surprisingly, she ended up dropping the charges. And now we're going to dive into an interesting topic, Ernst Bowen Camp. In April 1980, two of McElroy's daughters were shopping at a local corner store. The older daughter paid for her items, but as they were leaving, the younger daughter grabbed some candy out of a jar and headed for the door. The clerk saw what happened and warned the girl that she'd better return the candy or pay for it. The older girl snatched the candy from the younger girl, threw it back in the jar grabbed her little sister's hand, and barged out the door. The clerk thought nothing more of it, until Ken and Trina McElroy showed up. Both were fuming over the seemingly insignificant incident. Of course, McElroy had a gun. Trina, who was 23 by this time, began yelling at the clerk, which drew the attention of the store's owners, Ernst and Lois Bowenkamp. The two came out from the back of the store, becoming subject to the couple's ranting. Lois soon became fed up and told the McElroys to leave the store and never come back. They left, but for McElroy, it wasn't over. The Bowen camps became the new objects of McElroy's intimidation scheme. He would sit outside of their house and their truck for hours in the evening. A couple of times, he got out of the truck and fired his shotgun into the air. All this over a couple of pieces of candy. The Bowen Camps, who were in their early 70s at the time, tried their best to carry on with life as normal. But having this thug with serious rage issues breathing down their necks 24-7 meant it wasn't easy. Then one day, McElroy, McElroy drove to the corner store, found Bowen Camp, and shot him in the neck. Bo survived, McElroy was arrested, but he got, on, got, oh, excuse me, got out on bail and began harassing the officer who arrested Richard Strett. This went on for months. Thanks to his trial being subject to constant delays, McElroy swaggered around town as they always did and sat drinking for hours at his usual haunt DG Tavern. For the first time in his life, McElroy was actually convicted of a crime. However, the outcome of the conviction was a slap in the face for the Bowen Camps. His conviction was for second-degree assault and was sentenced to just two years for shooting someone in the neck. Skidmore residents were pleased that some justice was finally being served. But of course, McElroy filed an appeal of his conviction and was let out on $40,000 bail while his appeal was pending. This was a punch in the gut to everybody in Skidmore. The justice system had failed him once again. On his release, McElroy, McElroy strolled into the D&G Tavern, holding a rifle with a bayonet attached. Despite his conviction, he was still the arrogant goon he had always been. He waved the gun around inside the tavern, proclaiming that he was going to fo- finish off Bo Camp. Several patrons witnessed McElroy's display at the tavern and called the prosecutor, who revoked McElroy's bail. A hearing was scheduled in which the witnesses would testify that they had seen McElroy in the bar in possession of a loaded weapon. Uh, Then, on July 9th, 1981, Richard McFadden got the hearing delayed for two weeks. This is when the rage amongst locals reached the boiling point. Close to 50 of them had come together and made a plan to protect the witnesses who were going to testify against McElroy. Now that the hearing had been delayed, McElroy no doubt knew who the witnesses were. The entire town felt a sense of impending doom about what was about to happen. The next morning, people gathered once again, this time at the American Legion Hall, located across the street from the D&G Tavern. The plan was to discuss how they were going to protect themselves from McElroy for the next two weeks until the hearing. The authorities had let them down, so they had no choice but to take matters into their own hands. While the meeting was going going on, McElroy was back in the D&G Tavern, drinking with Trina. When the meeting ended, the group made their way across the street to the tavern to confront McElroy. They felt a sense of safety in numbers. Around 40 of them stood outside, while another 20 crowded into the small tavern. They surrounded McElroy, shouting at him that they had had enough and his days were number- numbered. McElroy and Trina got up without saying a word, pushing their way through the crowd towards the exit. The group outside the tavern had grown and began jeering as they saw the couple emerge from the tavern. McElroy and Trina got in their truck. Before driving away, McElroy stopped to light a cigarette. Just as he was taking his first drag, the sound of two gunshots rang out. The truck's windows were shattered. At least one of the bullets hit McElroy in the back of the head. Blood covered the inside of the vehicle, as well as Trina, who was sitting in the passenger seat. McElroy slumped forward on the steering wheel. Somebody opened the passenger door and pulled Trina out of the truck and into another building nearby. She was in shock, but not physically injured. No one called an ambulance. McElroy died at the scene, surrounded by the people he had terrified for decades. Investigators never got anyone to confess or give information about who had fired the lethal shot. Unsurprisingly, Skidmore residents were upset by the police presence in town. Why were they diligently carrying out this investigation into the killing of the man? who had made their lives miserable for so long. One man said to an officer examining the scene, What are you doing here? Why are you doing this? You know what he was like. You know how he oppressed and threatened us. I don't believe you're coming now after we needed your help all this time. Trina was the only person to come forward to investigators about who she believed had killed her husband. She had seen a man named Del Clement standing across the street with a rifle, at which point she told Ken they need to get out of there because he was going to get shot. But it was too late. No one else corroborated this story. Del Clement has since died and he never confessed. It is widely accepted that he fired one of the guns that shot McElroy. Trina moved away from Skidmore, remarried, and had more children. She died of cancer at age 55 in 2012. Ken McElroy was buried at Memorial Park Cemetery in St. Joseph, Missouri. He was 47 years old. On his tombstone are the words Brave, fearless, and compassionate. I have a feeling his neighbors would have described him somewhat differently. Let us know your thoughts on this topic in the comment section below. Do you think they'll ever figure out who actually killed Ken? Or do you think they'll just put it to rest? As always, if you want to support the show, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com TCNS. Your support helps the channel grow, upgrade our equipment, Bring a new hosts, pay them, create new content, even better content, and take this show on the road. Your support can make all of this happen. Of course, hit that thumbs up button if you like our video. Subscribe to the channel. Hit the bell notification button to be notified of future videos. As always, thank you so much for watching and listening. We will see you next time. You have been listening to the True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast. Thank you for listening. You can follow us on Facebook at True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast and on Twitter at True Crime NS. And follow us on Instagram at True Crime Never Sleeps. Thanks for watching. If you want to support the show, Buy us a coffee at BuyMeACoffee.com Or become a patron at Patreon.com slash
0: sleeps. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes.